Good morning. Uh, our reading for today uh, comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Uh, listen now to the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does a prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. service, we are working through the New City Catechism, so each week we are exploring one of these questions throughout Catechismal Sunday. So each Sunday we are working to review the previous questions, today we're going to read verse 19, and so uh, beginning a new section, we've kind of moved on uh, in briefs, the first part which we'll be completing um, God creation law, and the second we'll be now will be uh, Jesus Christ, and so we're going to focus on that. We're not going to review, um, because if we start reviewing 40, 50 questions, it's a little more. So, uh, so this will be the last of our reviews, but I want to just, again, continue, ask you to continue to um, review them. Um, so if I get the first question on the screen. Okay. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Question two, what is God? Question three, how many persons are there in God? How and why did God create us? What else did God create? How can we glorify God? What does the law of God require? What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? 
Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Did God create us unable to keep his law? Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? What is sin? What is idolatry? Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? And today's question is, who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only Redeemer, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, for this day, you enter into your presence. Give our mind to be into receptive to your word. And in the hearing, help us to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. To Philip as a kind of model for uh, He's someone for me as a kid spirit. Uh, I think of him as a second generation leader doing ministry between cultures uh, who at the end of his life sort of settles down and is just raising a family of four daughters. I only have one, but um, daughters who have the gift of prophecy. And someone, as we, I hope to show today, um, I think who can model for us the way we might approach uh, our lives and ministry. Philip first appears in Acts 6. And I should say, this is not the same Philip as the uh, Philip among the 12 disciples of Jesus. This is a different Philip. He's first mentioned in Acts 6 in the story about the Jerusalem church where they were having problems with the distribution of food to the widows. There were uh, Hebrew-speaking widows, and then there were primarily Greek-speaking widows. And so the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting their fair share of the food, but unfortunately the Greek-speaking ones uh, were not. I think from the very beginning of the church, we see here now the evidence of kind of divisions that still persist today between generations, uh, between languages. Um, and many of you I know uh, who grew up in a, a Korean church or other ethnic churches, this kind of discrimination and division uh, between generations because of language and other uh, questions, rather um, well, in, in the ethnic church, it's primarily through uh, language and culture. But in every church, there's always this danger of one group, a, a majority, neglecting the needs of a smaller group, whether it's language or ethnicity, gender, age, theology, political views, or a host of other reasons where a minority group might just get neglected. And here we see a case of that. And so the Jerusalem church decided to tackle this problem by appointing seven men to oversee a more fair distribution of food. Someone once told me only half jokingly that the proof of the Holy Spirit, that the proof of Pentecost is that you see here men serving women food. Anyway, Philip is one of these seven men chosen for the, not a lot of laughter there. Uh, <laughs> This group represents really the next wave, the second generation of leadership after the apostles. Uh, like many of you who have adopted traditional English names, Philip has a Greek name. Um, 
And I, it, I think it suggests to us that the fact that he's chosen for this task, that he's more in tune with the Greek-speaking culture and the Greek-speaking world than perhaps some of his more Jewish uh, friends and colleagues. He then appears at the beginning of chapter 8 where persecution has broken out and people, including uh, all the people in the Jerusalem church, are kind of forced to scatter because of persecution. And he goes to Samaria, and in Samaria, he has this incredible ministry. It's just that this great revival breaks out. Uh, He's preaching, he's performing miracles, he's casting out demons, baptizing. And um, it's just an incredible incredible ministry and it says that there was much joy in the ministry of Philip and so you know the the book of Acts really is this sort of progression from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth but Samaria is kind of this sort of pit stop it doesn't get a lot of attention the first eight chapters or so for seven chapters of Acts it's really about the church in Jerusalem primarily about the ministry of Peter. And then the rest of the book of Acts is about the Apostle Paul and his ministry to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. And kind of in between Jerusalem and the ends of the earth is Philip and Samaria. And he just gets this, this one chapter. It's almost kind of in passing. But, but I think it's so vital because it provides a link between Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. And Philip is this sort of uh, kind of forgotten apostle between Peter and Paul. And so he's working with groups of people who are like in between. They're not Jewish. They're Samaritans. Well, they're not exactly Gentiles, right? They're sort of these in-between people. And now in our reading today, uh, he's going to have this discussion with an Ethiopian eunuch who is just visiting Jerusalem. Right? So again, he's in between his home and he's just left, he's, he's, a, he's traveling and he's in between places. And he himself, because he's a eunuch, again, I think just in terms of his identity, he's sort of in between places. So there's all this kind of like, not quite one or the other things happening here. And the reading today, Philip gets this weird message from the angel of God. He's having this incredible success in Samaria. And you would think that God would say, you know, stay here and keep on building up the ministry here. But instead, he's told to go to a desert place to where there's nobody. Right? It's odd. No one's there. No one's there. I'm having great success in Samaria. But he goes. No explanation. No questioning. He obeys go and I think you know sometimes we have to just just do that even if it doesn't make sense just go because there are a lot of things in scripture that if you kind of think it through doesn't make a lot of logical sense pray for your enemies pray for those who persecute you rejoice in the Lord always Pray without ceasing. Can we do that? Can we obey simply because it's God's word? And I I imagine Philip going to the desert now and just kind of, okay, I'm here, and he's just like looking around, what am I supposed to do? All he knows is that he's supposed to be there. Maybe he's doubting if he really heard the word of the angel. And so the spirit then nudges him to join a chariot. And again, there, there are no detailed instructions here. 
go and join the chariot. That's all he gets. And I love the fact that Philip has to run. It's not go and join. It's he has to run. I love that little detail that he has to run to join the chariot. He's in the middle of the desert. It's midday. It's super hot, super dry. And he's got to run to catch up to this chariot. It's almost like the angel and the Holy Spirit are pranking him. Philip, go, go catch up to that chariot. Right? And I'm sure as he's running, he's, he's probably worried like this chariot's probably covered with Secret Service people. And maybe he's afraid they're going to shoot a bow and arrow at him. Like, this is like, this is just a kind of a comical scene uh, of Philip just, just running in the desert in the midday sun. And then again, when he catches up, again, there's no detailed instructions about what he's supposed to do. But he overhears him reading out loud. Uh, everyone read out loud in those days. And based on what he hears, based on the Isaiah text, which we heard last week, and Again, because of the way it's translated here, it seems like he's reading from a Greek text of Isaiah, not the Hebrew text. And so they can communicate, right? He doesn't have to know Ethiopian or something. And he asks, do you know what you're reading? To which the Ethiopian replies, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And so he invites him to join him in the chariot, and they have this nice little Bible study. Now, I'm going to tell you that um, in all my life, Nothing like this has ever happened. No one is like reading the Bible and I just kind of eavesdrop and they say, can you explain this? Like, that, that doesn't happen. So this is like an idea. Like, this is, it's like, it's just so easy and ready-made for, for Philip. But this uh, Ethiopian eunuch is pretty special. What's interesting is that he's introduced to us as an Ethiopian, but then for the rest of the passage, did you notice? He's referred to as the eunuch. That that piece of information is a bigger identity identifier than the fact that he's Ethiopian. Not his sort of ethnicity or where he comes from, but who he is in terms of his um, uniqueness. And I think there's a reason for highlighting this, which I'll get to in a minute. First of all, an Ethiopian doesn't mean someone who's from the country of modern Ethiopia. It just refers to the lands below uh, Egypt in Africa. So it's just someone, it's, it kind of symbolizes the remote ends of the earth. It's the people from like way, way over there. And it's, they were thought of as a incredibly uh, an idealized people uh, during Philip's day. Uh, for example, they were thought of as people of great beauty and morality. Homer spoke of the blameless Ethiopians and the historian Herodotus said that the burnt-skinned Ethiopians were the tallest and most handsome of all humankind. In the Old Testament, the Ethiopians are called Cushites, the Cushites, and they were admired for their uh, advances in uh, economics and military power um, and were seen to be as a group of people who one day would honor God with their resources. And just as a side note, Moses was married to a Cushite, for which he got a lot of grief from his siblings. You know, be, um, like, why did you marry her? And who, there are all kinds of questions uh, related to that. So this Ethiopian oversees the treasury of Candace, who is the queen of Ethiopia. It's a very high position, obviously. The fact that he's riding a chariot, 
the fact that he possesses a scroll, the fact that um, he's able to, to read Greek, uh, all of these things indicate that he is someone who is very well educated, very wealthy, and someone who has very high social standing and, and political power. Not many people had, you know, chariots with an extra seat. Um, but then we're given this one extra detail about him, that he is a eunuch. A eunuch is a castrated male servant who performed functions for royalty. Ideally, they were castrated before puberty, and the reason they did that was so that if you did it before they were, uh, hit puberty, they, would be, they were thought to be safe around women. And so you could have them in charge of the harems. Kings would, could trust them uh, with their women, that there wouldn't be any, you know, you know stuff. Um, and so his sexual status allowed him to rise to the highest levels of the Ethiopian court. But it also meant that Outside of that, he was going to be discriminated against. He could not enter, for example, the house of worship. He's come all this way to Jerusalem to worship, and he would have been barred. And I think that's the key to the story. He's returning, a, he's returning from a trip where he went to worship. I mean, from Ethiopia, depending on what part of you know, southern Africa that he's coming, I mean, that's a long, long trip. Right? It's longer than from coming here from Bergen. It's a long, long drive. And he's looking for God. And in all likelihood, he would have been barred from entering into the temple for worship. He may have been allowed in the outer courts of the Gentiles to worship from a distance, but that would have been as far as he could have gotten. He probably met some Pharisees who quoted to him Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No one, that's, so they would have shouted. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Right? If you weren't male, then you can't enter into worship. According to the first century historian Josephus, eunuchs were considered unnatural monstrosities and were shunned because of their gross non-masculinity and impotence. The inability to uh, produce children was considered, you know, unnatural and a curse. And so it, it was a shameful thing, right? And you're, you're considered weak and effeminate, unable to protect your family, unable to have children, and so on. Now, I, I know this text is not speaking about our current sexuality and gender identity debates, but I think it is a reminder that prejudice and discrimination, it's, it's nothing new. And the story, I think, points us toward something different. So maybe on his way home, he's looking for comfort. He's certainly not reading Deuteronomy 23, I'm sure. But he's reading Isaiah. Maybe he's been reading all morning. The, the grammar suggests he's been reading. And now he's read the first 52 chapters. And he's on chapter 53 when um, Philip comes along. And that was our reading from last Sunday. What's interesting that is that the Greek translation of chapter 53 is a little bit different than what you heard last week from the Hebrew and English. In Hebrew, it reads, uh, he was cut off out of the land of the living. He was cut off, meaning he, he died. 
it speaks of the death of the suffering servant. But the Greek translation of that, that they're reading, and that's in our text today, is a little bit different. In the English Standard Version, it reads, for his life was taken away from the earth. Now, that sounds very similar from being cut off. His life was taken away, meaning he died. However, taken away, that word taken, can also mean not taken away, but taken up. So it can suggest not just the humiliation of death, but the suggestion that he was exalted. He was taken up from the earth. So it's ambiguous. It can have both meanings. And Philip interprets this passage for him. I think he, he hooks onto that. And they have this great Bible study. I'm sure Philip did a word study on taken with this man. And that would have led to a nice segue into the good news about Jesus. Now, we, we don't get the whole conversation. We don't get the things that Philip said, the questions, the additional questions that were asked. Um, but I think we can take a pretty good guess at how the conversation might have gone. Last week, I preached from this very text, so you know what, how I might have handled that. Um, you heard how this is the fourth of the last fourth and last of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah that has this prophecy about a suffering servant who is to come, who I said is unmistakably Jesus, that the early church saw in that passage that this is, this must be, this can be no other than Jesus whom we know. He is the one who has borne our griefs. He is the one whose transgressions uh, were carried for us and leads us to peace. He is the one who is pierced for our transgressions, and he is the one in whom God delights. He is the one upon whom God has laid all of our iniquities, and in his death, we have peace and life with God. This is the good news about Jesus that I think Philip would have told this Ethiopian eunuch. I also imagine just as Peter and Stephen has preached earlier in the book of Acts, that Philip would have interpreted the rest of the Old Testament, beginning with creation and the fall, pointing to God's promises from the very beginning of the promised Messiah who is to come. He would have told about Genesis 3, about the serpent's head being crushed by one who is to come later. He would have told about one who is a descendant of King David, who will be the new king. He would have talked about Abraham and the righteousness that was declared to him, imputed to him, not because of works, but because of faith. Maybe he talked about God's promise of a redeemer using the story of Ruth and Boaz and how that foreshadows the redeemer who is to come. Maybe he pointed out the words of Job 19, I know that my redeemer lives. I know that my redeemer lives and that at the last will stand upon the earth. Somehow that those words are now and have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He, he, would have, he could have worked all the way through the Old Testament, pointing out, here is Jesus, here is Jesus, here is the good news of Jesus, now fulfilled in this man, this our Redeemer. I imagine he would then go on to quote words of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That Christ is the only Redeemer that God has made for us. He would insist as the other preachers insisted that there is no other name under heaven by which we will be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He would tell him, 
that it is Jesus. He would tell him about his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. He would tell him that Jesus is the one who redeems us from slavery of sin, from the curse of the law, from empty religion, from the power of Satan's, from the coming judgment, and from death. He would tell them all these things. And maybe they kept reading Isaiah and they got to a few chapters later in verse chapter 56 where they would read these words together. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I mean, that's a great word of promise. And that's what he wants, to be included in the house of of God. And how does that happen? How do you go from being marginalized to being included in the household of God. And Philip says, it's through the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the good news of Jesus. He is the redeemer. He is the one I declare to you. So this Ethiopian eunuch hears this good news. He responds by asking for baptism, the sign of new life and inclusion into the community of believers in Christ. It doesn't matter that he's an eunuch. It doesn't matter that he's an Ethiopian. He receives the good news. He makes this decisive commitment and returns home rejoicing. That's the result of good news. You rejoice. We don't know what happens, but tradition tells us that he went back. He preached the gospel. And we do know that Ethiopia is one of the first places where Christianity is established. And tradition points their church um, back to him. I just want to make one reflection with you uh, today. As you know, our mission statement and the charge I give to you every Sunday is encourage one another to follow Jesus Christ and invite others to him. And I've told you often, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that the word encourage from the Greek means to be called alongside. To encourage is to be called alongside. And we have here a story today that is literally someone being called alongside. Once called alongside, he listened, he asked, and then he told the good news about Jesus. And he invited his fellow traveler to follow Jesus. You know, this is one of the stories that has led me to kind of Um, think about ministry and to uh, organize the church with this idea of encourage of being called alongside because it seems to me that this is where our life is most of the time you notice here that philip is not told precisely what to do he's simply told to go and then that's kind of about it he, he goes to where he's told to go, and then he kind of has to figure out the rest for himself. He does not get detailed instructions about what he's supposed to do. 
the Holy Spirit did not tell me this morning to go to church and preach on this particular text. The Spirit did not tell me this morning who I should talk to in the fellowship hall after service. I, I don't have that instruction. The Spirit did not tell me this morning which of the Lenten FG gates I should attend. I don't know that. I don't know that. I didn't get clear instructions. I didn't get instructions from the Spirit today whose conversations I should eavesdrop in on and then ask a question. I didn't get any of that. I do know, like Philip, I'm supposed to be here today. I know God called me to be here. I know that. And I also know that God has given me ears and eyes and feet and hands, a spirit, a mind. So I can choose. I can pick people to walk alongside of them and to listen and to ask questions. Right? If I see someone maybe sitting by themselves, maybe that's the spirit telling me, there's someone maybe you ought to go talk to. I love this because it's this incredible combination, this choreography of God, where God's spirit is leading, but invites Philip to take some initiative. God's perfect will and human freedom, genuine human freedom, are both preserved. Philip could have refused God at many points throughout this story. He could have stayed in Samaria. He could have let the chariot go by because, you know, it's hot. He doesn't have his running shoes on. Wait for the next chariot that's going a little slower. He could have eavesdropped and just let that slide by. He could have done a number of different things. And God didn't say, hey, dumb guy, start talking. He didn't get any of that. God just said, I want you to go there. And then he kind of figured out the rest for himself. I think that's how God does things most of the time. It's God's perfect timing, God's leading, but it's an invitation for us to participate, to act. That each of us is here today not simply to be blessed, but you know you're here to do ministry. I hope you know that. I believe God has called you here today to walk alongside someone, or maybe even after, to run after someone. Maybe one of the kids is running, you know, maybe God's calling you to run after them, to listen, to ask a question, to have a conversation, and to somehow maybe even talk and to share the good news about Jesus. You don't have to go outside. You don't have to run. But you can sit here and over there and ask a question. How are you doing? What's God teaching you? Did you understand what Pastor David was talking about? How can I unless someone explains it to me? Here's what God's been doing in my life. Can I pray for you? And of course, not just here, but every day at work, at home, at school. You know, I've mentioned before to you that um, most of you, or I think almost all of you, um, you like to sit in the same chair in the sanctuary. Nearly all of you sit in the same chair or in the same general vicinity, right? There's no reason for you to do that, right? It's, it's an it's a unnecessary habit. But what I've noticed also is not only do you like to sit in the same spot in the sanctuary, you like to sit in the same spot in the fellowship hall. 
right? We don't have assigned seating here. You're free to move about the cabin. And I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to deliberately choose to sit somewhere different and to have a conversation with someone different today and next week. Because let me remind you why God calls us to this place, to to anywhere, and why, why God calls us to share the good news. It's not because God doesn't have a better means of communication. God has an army of angels. It would be more efficient, maybe more powerful, certainly, to send angels with the good news. In fact, in this story, God could have sent the angel of the Lord to the Ethiopian eunuch instead of the Philip and, you know, get rid of the whole middleman. Just go right to him. But he sent Philip and he sends you and me. The reason for this is very simple. Because no matter how powerful, no matter how frightening angels may be, you and I are better than angels at communicating the good news about Jesus Christ. Did you know that? What you say about Jesus is more powerful and more persuasive than an angelic choir. Because you know what it is to be a human being. Angels do not. You know what it is to struggle with trusting, with doubt, You know what it is to struggle with injustice, with grief, with suffering. You know what it is to not belong and want to belong. And most important of all, you know what it is to be forgiven. An angel does not. You have a shared human experience of what it is to know Jesus in a way that angels cannot know. And that's why God sends you and me to tell the good news about Jesus. You know what Jesus has done for you personally. That's why God sends us. That's why God sends, you know, that's why we go to the Dominican Republic, for example. Because even in my non-existent Spanish my terrible Spanish, I can communicate, I can testify of the good news of Jesus Christ better than a Spanish fluent angel. And the people in the DR, in their broken English, can communicate to me and testify of the goodness of God better than angels. That's why we go. It is inefficient. It's very inefficient. I don't like running in the midday sun in the DR and carrying bricks. But we go because God has called us to go and we obey. We walk alongside so that we can testify the good news about Jesus. The good news is that in him we are forgiven and have eternal life because he has borne all our transgressions 
And because he is a redeemer, God has promised and has provided for us. The good news, as the Ethiopian eunuch discovered, is not that in the daily and annual animal sacrifices in the temple of Jerusalem is going to save him, but that in the once and for all substitutionary atonement of Jesus upon the cross, that that, that that is the way of salvation. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The good news of Jesus is not some theory or doctrine in a book. It's not. It's not some, you know, some esoteric idea brought by angels. It is the word of God made flesh. It is one that you and I have come to know personally, relationally. It is whom you have known. And so we come alongside others and we have to help interpret the scriptures to them. It's not just my job and other pastors to interpret scripture. It's all of us. It's this combination of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and you saying this is who Jesus is. You know that much. Be where God calls you. Go to where God is calling you. Walk alongside someone. Listen. Ask a question. And then share the best thing that you have, the best thing that you know, the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, help us to be like Philip, to be the messenger that brings your good news about Jesus and to witness the great joy that that will bring. Help us to interpret their lives and our lives in the light of your spirit and scripture. God, help us to welcome. God, help us to go where you call us, not where we're comfortable. That we might be your people that your word might take root in all the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.